Hello and welcome to the Top Story, a podcast that brings you the headlines of the day with the help of our correspondents from around the world. I'm Tian Yu. Coming up in this edition, Chinese President Xi Jinping is urging for enhanced friendship and cooperation between China and South Africa as he attends the BRIC summit in the country. Tropical storm Hillary has brought heavy rains and flooding to Southern California, and progressive leader Bernardo Arevalo has won Guatemala's presidential election with 60% of the vote. Starting in Africa, Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for enhanced friendship and cooperation between China and South Africa to achieve more successes. He made the call in an article published in South African media ahead of his arrival for the BRICS summit and official visit to the country. The Chinese president said China-Africa cooperation will provide fresh impetus to global development and ensure greater stability of the world. He further said South Africa and China should work together to appeal for a greater voice and influence of developing countries in international affairs, promote accelerated reform of international financial institutions, and oppose unilateral sanctions. Sun Ye has more from Johannesburg. On the flagship newspaper, the Star, Chinese President Xi Jinping had published an opinion piece where he called the giant ship of China-South Africa friendship has set sail and the ship is going for greater success. In South Africa's trade minister towards the BRICS Business Council uh, is the place where products, ideas and growth opportunities between the BRICS countries are shared and amplified. Ms. Meng Shusen, she is the chairperson for the Digital Economy Group for the BRICS Business Council and she said she felt all the participants have been having concrete, practical and honest talks among one another and those talks could only be setting up the stage for what she calls milestone growth in the future. That was Sun Ye in Johannesburg, host city of the BRICS Summit. Meantime, South Africa has launched the BRICS Trade Fair ahead of the official opening of the BRICS Summit. The fair is a platform for businesses from all over Africa to connect and market their products to Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Julie Shire has more. Before the BRICS summit takes place in Johannesburg, there's much buzz around this city. And at the BRICS trade fair, it was opened by South Africa's trade and industry minister, Ibrahim Patel. You'll see a number of products. You'll see cars and taxis and buses and three-wheelers that are made here on the African continent. You'll see here also not only a showcase of South African industrial capability, but also of 19 other African countries. The fair is an exciting display of what Africa has to offer, the latest in technology, medical and transport innovation and everyday products. The BRICS um, allows for us to tap into different spaces that we usually wouldn't be um, open to. We're able to meet people from different backgrounds, with different ideas. This opportunity that has been given for networking, we hope, you know, African countries can partner and work together for sustainable growth. It also brings opportunities for African businesses entering an era of industrialization and growth through the Continental Free Trade Agreement. 
as a company that is in the area of deploying Wi-Fi to underprivileged communities. Um, equipment for me is a big one. So uh, I'm attending one of the sessions where Huawei um, is speaking because we, are, you know, we have to find cheaper ways of production to ensure that um, we reduce our costs and um, so that we can roll out to as many communities as possible. I think the opportunities for growth, opportunities for both women, but also the le lessons coming from the COVID-19 that you know, there are, there's a different way and different shift to grow each other's economies and take advantage of what we each bring to the party. South Africa does $80 billion worth of trade with the BRICS nations. There's now a push to extend that beyond its borders to its neighbors and others on the continent. That was Julie Shire at the BRICS trade fair in Johannesburg. In North America, Tropical Storm Hillary has brought heavy rains and flooding to Southern California. Previously classified as a hurricane, it weakened as it made landfall along the U.S.-Mexico border. It's the first tropical storm to hit California in 84 years. Hillary has killed at least one person in Mexico. Frank Contreras reports from Baja, California. Streets all over Ensenada flooded. Santa Rosalia saw one person killed in that small town in the southern part of the Baja California Peninsula. The person was trying to cross a river and their car was essentially pushed away by the powerful waters. The water now has launched boulders from sides of hills. Mudslides are taking place as we speak. There's the danger that some houses could collapse. Houses that are built along hillsides, muddy areas near the northern Mexican city of Tijuana right across the border from San Diego, California. In the state of California, massive preparations have been underway. This heavy torrential rain is what threatens people's lives. Treacherous, it's been called by weather experts here in this part of the world. The possibility of not only damage to property, but also the loss of human lives, animals, livestock, agriculture. Uh, the storm is going as far north as the U.S. state of Idaho. Imagine that's near the border with Canada. And so we're talking about a massive area here that is being affected by this heavy rain coming down. That was Frank Contreras in Mexico. In Canada, most of the residents in the northern city of Yellowknife have left their homes for neighboring provinces under the threat of wildfires. In British Columbia, the military is helping tackle the fast-spreading blazes as more than 35,000 people are under evacuation orders. Mark Neal has more. Nikki Goyer and her fiancé on a frantic drive on the Squilax Highway in British Columbia. Feel the heat? No trouble breathing. At the very end, you, where the right to the right, that is where we felt the most intense heat in the car. You could feel a little bit of warmth driving through it, but most of it, it was just the fear of all the red. Just a few hours drive east of Vancouver, the city of Kelowna has evacuated tens of thousands of people with thousands more on evacuation alert. 150 kilometers north, two fires merged around the Shuswap Lake area forcing the evacuation of thousands more. British Columbia's premier took the extreme step of ordering an emergency order to halt non-essential travel to the interior region. This is specific to ensuring that we have accommodation available for evacuees, for emergency personnel, so that they have places to stay uh, as they respond to uh, the front line and have to evacuate their own camps. 
In Canada's Northwest Territories, firefighters continue to build firebreaks, hoping to stop the blaze from destroying the region's capital city of Yellowknife. At least 95% of Yellowknife's 20,000 residents have evacuated. The city of Edmonton has responded by opening its Expo Center to serve as an evacuation shelter. Here, people are coming to not only find a place to stay, but also get food, clothing, and even health care. At the evacuation center, I meet Bonnie Ritchie, who works for the Yellowknife Water and Sewer Division. She's worried about her home, but also worried about Kelowna, the city she grew up in. I do have family and friends who will have their homes burnt down, if not already, in Kelowna. So. Right now, I'm, my heart's with them because I know that the loss is going to be pretty impactful there. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that this doesn't happen to Yellowknife. Families from Yellowknife rode a shuttle bus for 24 hours to find a safe place to stay. We are very worried. We don't know if we are going to have a home when we return. It is very devastating. I have three kids, my parents, my family. It is, I don't know, I can't express how I'm feeling right now. Although they've left so much behind, Christine and her family still feel fortunate, like so many walking these grounds, to be here safe and sound with each other. That was Mark Neal with a report on people fleeing wildfires across Canada. In Central America, progressive leader Bernardo Arevalo has won Guatemala's presidential election with 60% of the vote. The anti-corruption candidate finished second in the first round but managed to turn the tables on former First Lady Sandra Torres in a surprise win. Aravalo is the son of a former president. He served as a diplomat and congressman. The center-left politician has been advocating to curb crime and corruption, tackle malnutrition, and bring economic growth to the Central American country. His supporters have taken to the streets to celebrate. Alastair Beverstock reports from Guatemala City. What can be described as a landslide win for Bernardo Arevalo is now official. He has defeated his opponent, First Lady, former First Lady Sandra Torres, by nearly one million votes here, following what have been two months of very difficult and controversial campaigning. People were very highly motivated in this election, particularly the youth vote, who have appeared to turn out in very large numbers here. Bernardo Arevalo has been an anti-corruption candidate from the very start. Guatemala is one of the, the, the poorest countries in the whole world, but nevertheless receives billions of dollars a year in international financial aid. But we have been spent many years reporting here, and in our coverage of this country, going to the rural areas and speaking with ordinary Guatemalans, it's very rare to hear that any of that, that financial aid actually ends up making a difference where it is meant to. So Bernardo Arevalo will certainly have a task on his hands when it comes to tackling that institutional corruption which the political elite in Guatemala have espoused for many years here. That was Alastair Beverstock on the outcomes of Guatemala's presidential election. Still in the Americas, leftist candidate Luisa Gonzalez and former lawmaker Daniel Noboa are going into the second round of Ecuador's presidential election. Gonzalez had about a third of the vote, with more than 70% of ballot boxes counted. Noboa trails with about a quarter of the vote. Sunday's voting came amid tight security after a presidential candidate was assassinated earlier this month. Voters are hoping for a government that will fight crime and boost the flagging economy.
Dan Collins reports from Quito. Voting began in Quito amid a powerful display of security. Flanked by police and army commandos, presidential candidate Christian Zurita is running in place of his friend, murdered presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio. Facing death threats just like his late colleague, Zurita was taking no chances. We will face with determination what it means to bring the country forward under the principles and programs which we have put forward. We must expose all the possible threats against us. Remember, that's how they killed Fernando. The political assassination of the journalist turned politician less than two weeks before the snap election shook the country. And many are voting with that in mind. Here, what we need is a leader who, first of all, guarantees that all citizens can move freely. In the building next door, they killed Fernando Villavicencio. So these are situations that we as Ecuadorians, in a country that used to be one of peace and tranquility, did not see coming. Janet Castro voted with her sister for conservative candidate Otto Sonnenholzner. I think that he has a good plan to for our safety because we have problems now safety and I think he has good uh, ideas mm -hmm. and also for our situation economical situation. Since Via Vicencio's murder, all the candidates have been focusing on fighting crime and creating peace. Voting in Quito, former president and a parliamentary candidate, Lucio Gutierrez, said Ecuador needs international help. Ecuador is bleeding to death. Ecuador is falling apart. And if there is no unity between the executive and the legislature, the state could collapse. It could become a failed state, and we could even disintegrate. The Interior Ministry said 100,000 soldiers have been deployed across the country to protect the electoral process. The vast majority of Ecuadorians want peace and security. But to achieve that, the next president will have to focus on the root causes of the surge in crime and violence. The election was called by outgoing president Guillermo Lasso in May to stave off impeachment by a hostile parliament. Whoever is elected will only govern for less than a year and a half, which may not be enough time to make big changes. That was Dan Collins reporting. Before we go, here is a recap of the top stories. Chinese President Xi Jinping is urging for enhanced friendship and cooperation between China and South Africa as he attends the BRIC summit in the country. Tropical storm Hillary has brought heavy rains and flooding to Southern California. And progressive leader Bernardo Arevalo has won Guatemala's presidential election with 60% of the vote. And that concludes this edition of The Top Story, a podcast that brings you world headlines every weekday. For more news in politics, business, sports, and culture, you can subscribe to The Beijing Hour, a one-hour podcast news magazine program. We welcome and appreciate all ratings and reviews. I'm Tian Yu. Thank you for listening.